Anyway, uh, Luke chapter number 10, I'm going to begin reading in verse number 25. The scripture says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered rightly, and and, uh, do this, and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. So he went to him, and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, He set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend when I come, I will repay you. So which of these do you think was neighbor to him who fell among thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now it happened as they went, they entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distressed with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary hath chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Today we embark on week two of our series, Answers, Biblical Answers for a Broken Nation. Last week we said that even though some good things are happening in our nation, all of the economic indicators are high, material success is not the only measurement of health. How many of you understand that? Sometimes there's a lot of people in our world, right? They have a lot of material wealth, but that doesn't mean that they are healthy. And God forbid we as Christians reduce whether or not we are healthy to what our bank account says. It's great to be financially healthy, and God wants us to be financially healthy. But there are so many other things that are important. And as we look across our land and we look across our nation, we don't see a United States of America. We see a divided States of America. We see people fighting with one another and yelling at one another and talking past one another and saying whatever they want, whenever they want to whoever they want and feeling justified in doing so. And it seems to me like we have forgotten how to be good neighbors with one another. We have forgotten what human decency is all about. We have forgotten how to care for one another and how to bear one another's burdens and how to hear one another and empathize with one another and how to speak to one another. And so as we enter this second week and Answers, biblical answers for a broken nation. I've entitled this message on how to be a good neighbor, Mr. Rogers. Anybody know who Mr. Rogers is? Anybody remember Mr. Rogers from back in the day? Some of you people, you're like, who is Mr. Rogers? Look, some of the people are like 25 and under, they're like, Mr. Rogers, who's Mr. Rogers? Let me introduce you to Mr. Rogers. It's a beautiful day in this neighborhood, a beautiful day for a neighbor. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? It's a neighborly day in this beauty wood, 
a neighborly day for a beauty. Would you be mine? Could you be mine? I have always wanted to have a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. So let's make the most of this beautiful day. Since we're together, we might as well say, Would you be mine? Could you be mine? Would you be my neighbor? Won't you please? Won't you please? Please, won't you be my neighbor? And so we're neighbors again today. I'm glad to be with you. Come on, Mr. Rogers. Yay, it makes me want to get a bowl of fruity pebbles and sit on the couch, you know, when you were a kid. Anyway, um, let's go before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for speaking to our hearts. We thank you for open hearts and open ears. Would you minister to our souls today? Would you uh, change our outlook on how we are supposed to treat people in this time of division in our land? Would you... Give us the answers. Only you have the words of eternal life. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everybody said, you may be seated. Forgot to mention that today is Sunday night football. I got a book that you need to get, by the way. The book is entitled, check this out, Your Giant is Going Down. Just just saying, you know, I, I don't know what that means or anything like that. Anyway, as we come to the text, we find Jesus being asked a right question, a great question by a lawyer. And, and, and he's asking Jesus the question, the most important question that you could ask Jesus, and that is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What, what other question is there when, when, when that is the question that is asked? I mean, it's the essential of what you and I need to pick up on as we go through this world. What, what qualifies us for eternal life? He's asking the right question, the best question, but how many of you know he's not asking you with the right motives? He's, he's got a different motive behind it. Matter of fact, he already knows the answer to the question. He is an expert in the law. He knows what the law says about how to inherit eternal life. And so he's not asking Jesus because he wants to know. He's a lawyer whenever, sorry lawyers, when do lawyers ask questions without ulterior motives? And so he's testing Jesus. He wants to trip Jesus up. He has wrong motives. And by the way, that's a whole nother discussion in our day and time about asking questions or going to people with the right motives. We don't, we don't go to people with the right motives anymore. We go to people to expose. We go to people to demonize. We go to people to embarrass. And if we're going to be neighbors to one another, not my point, not in your notes, one of the things we have to realize is we have to approach one another with sincere and pure motives. And so he approaches Jesus not to find out the answer. The verse says to test him. To expose what he thinks is a contradiction between what Jesus is teaching and living and what the law says. Matter of fact, if you dig a little bit deeper, you find out that the reason why he's asking Jesus this question is because Jesus is hanging out with some people that this guy doesn't like. Jesus is hanging out with publicans and sinners and tax collectors and drunks and prostitutes. I mean, Jesus' hood is looking pretty shady. I mean, all around Jesus, he got, he's got all of these people. And, and this Jewish guy is like, why is, why are you Jesus? 
You're a Jew. You're a rabbi. Why are you hanging out with all these people? And what he's infuriated by is not only is Jesus hanging out with these people who don't fit his class, who don't fit what he thinks uh, they should be hanging out with. Jesus is inviting them into eternal life. He's inviting them to receive eternal life. And what's amazing to me about the message that Jesus preached, it was attractive to sinners. Did you notice that about Jesus? There weren't too many sinners who rejected Jesus' message. You know who rejected Jesus' message? It was religious people. But the sinners, Jesus is hanging out with these, these wine-bibbers and these gluttons and these tax collectors and these prostitutes and these drunks and everything. And he's inviting them to receive eternal life. And they're all signing up. They're all just coming in by the droves. And here is this expert in the law, and he doesn't like who is in Jesus' hood. And so what he does is he comes to Jesus and he says, he says, Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? It's not really a question. What Jesus is doing flies in the face of what this man believes. This man believes based on the law that it is our, that is their righteous behavior that qualifies somebody for eternal life. How many of you are glad righteous behavior does not qualify you for eternal life? Aren't you glad about that? Some people are like, well, I'm not sure about it. You better be sure. Because if it's your righteous behavior that qualifies you for eternal life, we are all going to hell. Because I found out something about Christians. I don't mean to tell on everybody. I don't mean to share everybody's business. I found out some things about Christians and that the truth is that Christians have a lot in common with Jerry Springer. The last book I write is going to be called, What Does Jerry Springer and the Church Have in Common? Because you see all sorts of stuff in Christians. Christians behave badly. Now, that's not the way we're supposed to behave. We're supposed to have the fruit of the Spirit. We are supposed to exemplify the works of righteousness. But the truth of the matter is, I'm glad that our salvation is not determinate upon our works of righteousness. I'm glad that our salvation is firmly based on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the finished work of Him on the cross and through the resurrection. I'm glad about that. And so, this man is like, well, you know, you shouldn't be inviting those kind of people into eternal life, Jesus. He says, he says, why would you do something like that? That's what he's basically saying. So Jesus flips it on him and Jesus says, well, well, what do you say the law says? By the way, when, any, when anybody asks you a question that doesn't have sincere motives, you're not obligated to answer it. And you know, we find this going on right now in the press all the time. Uh, thank God for freedom of the press. We, we ought to be Thank God for that. We, we need that in our, in our country, freedom of the press. But how about responsibility of the press? Wouldn't that be wonderful, responsibility of the press? And, 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 and without getting off on that. And so what happens is questions are being asked with, without sincere motives. And as a result of not being asked, with sincere, you don't have to answer them. Somebody puts a mic in my face who doesn't have a sincere motive and goes like this. Hey, pastor, do you think people who do this will go to heaven? Now, if they really want to know, if I sense that there's sincerity, I'll answer the question. But if I sense that they are just trying to alienate me from a group of people who need Jesus, I'm not answering the question. I'll say, well, what do you think? That's an interesting philosophy. You ought to go ahead and live that philosophy out. Well, but what do you think? Well, I'm just asking you what you think. Well, why don't, I'm, I'm the one that's asking the questions here. I know, but I'd like to ask you the question instead. You see, you don't have to answer questions or people don't have sincere motives. Jesus asked a question. He says, he said, well, tell me what you think. And the guy says, well, the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus is like, word, go ahead and do it. But the guy realizes Jesus has got him. 
The guy realized Jesus got him trapped. Jesus won the argument and the conversation. He doesn't like it. And then the next thing he says, and wanted to justify himself. Jesus won that. Jesus was like, why are you trying to discredit me for teaching, for treating people with dignity and respect? Why? Just because you don't like what they stand for? Just because you don't like what they look like? Just because you don't like what they believe? Because I'm treating people with dignity and respect? You're going to diss me like that? Jesus is like, no, it doesn't work like that. And the guy wanted to justify himself, not wanting to admit that he was wrong. Another big thing that would cause some healing in our world. How about just admitting when you're wrong? Instead of a spin, how about just say, just I'm sorry. You know, amazing how, how just little things can, can, can change the discourse. Anyway, he doesn't want to admit that he's wrong. And so he says to Jesus, the second question he asks Jesus is, well, who is my neighbor? And again, this is not a sincere question. This is not like, Jesus, can you really tell me? Because I really want to know. It's more like a statement. He goes like this. It's like, and Jesus, who is my neighbor? In other words, Jesus, you know who your neighbor is supposed to be. You know that as Jews, we have clearly defined who our neighbors are, who are worthy of eternal life. And so Jesus, who's hanging out with people who shouldn't be neighbors, tax collectors, wine bibbers, gluttons, uh, prostitutes, drunks, you know they shouldn't be neighbors. Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus sniffs this thing out. Because in Bible times, this, this, whole, this whole who is my neighbor thing was a big deal. Jewish people in Bible days believed that only other Jews were their neighbors. And so they had all these different kind of laws. Matter of fact, you know about the regular laws. There was over 600, I think it's 690 some laws in the Old Testament. Imagine having to obey 690 different rules. Could you imagine that? How many of you know we would fail? How many of you know that was the point of the law? The point of the law was to frustrate the tar out of us. It was like, I, I just can't do it on my own. There's no way I can ever be holy on my own. I need some help with this. And God was like, okay, now that you finally realize you need help, let me send Jesus to do for you what you can't do for yourself. Well, they had 690 or so laws that they, that they had to obey. And then what they did is they made more laws on top of that. Can you believe that? Because they made laws to prevent you from breaking the law. They were called fence laws. And so they had these things called Sabbath laws. And one of the Sabbath laws defined neighboring. And basically what it said is this. It says if, if um, you just happen to walk by and, and there's a wall that falls on somebody. If it just happens, you know, you're just walking by, a wall just collapses. If that just happens to take place. I don't know that. Ever, if it just happens to take place. You're allowed to go over on the Sabbath and remove enough of the wall to see if the person is Jewish or Gentile. If they're Jewish, you can remove the rest of the wall, but if they're Gentile, leave them there to die. Word. That, that, that's on the books right there. And, 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 so, and then there were other Jews who believed that not just other Jews were your neighbors, but it was only Jews who followed the law to the T were your neighbors. And so Jesus and this guy are having a conversation, and this guy knows the answer. He's like, and Jesus, who is our neighbor? Come on, Jesus, spit it right out here because you're not going to win this argument. And so Jesus tells him a story. And in the story, Jesus deals with two things. The first thing he deals with is the who is our neighbor. And the second thing he deals with is the how to be a good neighbor. And the who is just like, Jesus kind of lays it out there because it's, it's basic. It's fundamental. It's like, you know, everybody should have this in their spiritual arsenal. Who is your neighbor? And here's what Jesus does. If we're going to be a good neighbor, number one on your outline, you need to redefine your hood. 
You need to redefine your hood. How do we know this? Well, look at what Jesus does here. Well, first of all, the word neighbor, just let me elaborate a little bit. The word neighbor in the Greek literally describes somebody who is geographically proximate. Somebody who is near you. Okay? So that's why we get the, the thing next door neighbor or my neighborhood. These are people that live near me. And so Jewish people believed that their neighbors were other Jewish people that lived by them. But in Bible times, as I already alluded to, this word neighbor connoted somebody who believes like I believe. Somebody who thinks like I think. Somebody who speaks like I speak. Somebody who talks like I talk. Somebody who dresses like I dress. And so this neighbor thing was more than just, are they close to me? It means, do they come from the same mentality, the same makeup as I do? Do we have all these things in common? And so Jesus embarks upon the answer, who is my neighbor? Is it who you say it is? Is your neighbor just the people who look like you, think like you, believe like you, talk like you, dress like you, and act like you? Or is there more to this thing of biblical neighboring? Because if they're not our neighbor, here's the mentality, then we don't have to treat them with love and dignity. And have you seen that happening in our culture? We are redefining who gets courtesy, who gets to be treated nicely. And we are saying, well, if they have these characteristics or if they have these beliefs, then they can be put over here. And if they're put over here, you can treat them however you want to. And so Jesus is dealing with this issue. And he gives the first line in the story. And he says, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And what's interesting about this is notice the man is a certain man. He doesn't tell us whether he's a black man or a white man. Doesn't tell us whether he's a brown man or a red man. Doesn't tell us any of these things. Not a rich man or a poor man. Not a Democrat or a Republican. Not a Christian or a non-Christian. Not a Jew or a non-Jew. He just says a certain man. Jesus leaves the guy faceless. And he does this masterfully and purposefully because he's speaking to us about who should be our neighbor. However, in Bible times, there were certain ways that you could tell if somebody was like, like you. And one of the ways you'd be able to tell if somebody was like you is by the way they dressed and by their speech or by their, their accent. And notice what Jesus does. Right out of the gate, he says that the robber stripped the man. He's got no clothes. You can't identify him. And he's left for dead. He can't talk. You can't identify him. What is Jesus telling us? Jesus is telling us that I want you to understand that if we are going to ever get this thing about common decency and the way that we treat one another right, we have to see each other as, in one extent, faceless. It's not saying we don't recognize the distinctiveness of one another, but we don't let the distinctiveness define whether we are able to treat you with respect or treat you with love. Jesus is saying to us, a neighbor is not not one who fits a certain race or skin color. A neighbor is not one who fits into a certain class, rich, poor, or middle. A neighbor is not somebody who fits into a certain religion. A neighbor is not somebody who fits into a certain political persuasion. A neighbor is not somebody who fits into a, a particular belief system. A neighbor is not somebody who watches Fox or CNN. A neighbor is not somebody who is pro-choice or pro-life. A neighbor is not somebody who is gay or straight. A neighbor is not somebody who loves or hates the president. A neighbor is a human being. Is somebody who is alive on the planet. That's a neighbor. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying we don't get to, and I'll talk about this in a little bit, exclude people. We need to realize who our neighbors are. This is basic. Jesus is saying, listen, here's what my hood looks like. 
My hood's got all sorts of people in it. My, my hood's got people who you would expect to be in it and people you wouldn't expect. Matter of fact, when they talked bad about Jesus, you remember what they said about him? They said, he's a friend of sinners and tax collectors. That was their insult about Jesus. You know, you're hanging out with the wrong type of people. And Jesus is like, and you're criticizing me for that? Friends, who needs Jesus? The people who we would often say, why? You're hanging out with them, right? He hung out with those that were far from God. He's saying, include some of those people. Include people who are close to God but have different looks than you think you you, you should have in your circle. Look at my hood, Jesus is saying. He's saying, will you redefine your hood? He purposefully makes the man in the story faceless. And after Jesus has got this down, like this is like bottom level, this is like foundation. If you can't understand that everybody deserves human dignity and human respect and you, everybody deserves to be treated nicely by you as a Christian, you aren't even on the basement floor of Christianity yet. That's what Jesus is saying here. And then he expands that he goes to, okay, now that we got the who out of the way, let's talk about the how. How can we be good neighbors? And number two on your outline, he says we got to reject the loopholes. You know what we do as Christians? This is, this is interesting. This is facts. Pastor in 25 years, this is definitely facts. Christians always look for loopholes. Always. Watch this, watch this. What's a tithe? Like you don't know. I, I never heard that before, Pastor. Been saved 25 years. I don't know what a tithe is, Pastor. And you know, what do we do? Looking for a loophole. Looking for a loophole. Well, not, Pastor, do I tithe off the gross or the net? What are you doing? Looking for a loophole. Do I tithe off the inheritance or just my weekly paycheck? Looking for a loophole. See, here's what we do as Christians. Instead of just doing what God says, we are always looking for a way to exclude it being applicable to us. And so watch how I'm going to get up all in your head right now. I'm going to play psychologist right now. You're going to be like, how did he know that? What's this? It's like a, Zen thing. When I was listing some of the things that people use to exclude people from their hood, you know what some of you were doing? You, you were trying to say, well, well, maybe I don't have to include them. Maybe I don't have to include them. You were looking at it. Some of you were trying to find a loophole. How do I exclude those who are Fox News junkies? How do I get rid of the CNN people in my life? How do I write off the pro-choicers? How do I write off the pro-lifers? How do I write off the gay people? How do I write off the this? How do I write off the that? Some of you are trying to find a loophole to exclude people from being your neighbors so you don't have to love them like you love yourself. And watch what you're doing. And I'll tell you what you, some of you are doing right now. You're thinking of Bible verses to exclude people. Well, the Bible says, so I don't have to include them. Well, well, I can quote you three scriptures, Pastor, right now that talks about that particular issue that is prominent in their life so I don't have to include them. Yo, you know, Pastor, based on the preponderance of the New and Old Testament. You know what you're trying to do? You're trying to justify excluding people from being part of your neighborhood so you don't have to love them like you loved yourself. Here's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, there is no loophole. There is no such exclusion 
in the Bible. You're doing the same thing that the lawyer was trying to do. He goes to Jesus. He says, Jesus, now we clearly know who the law says is our neighbor. And you are including people that the law says you should not include. Bad Jesus. That's what he's doing. And Jesus presses this issue vehemently. He says, he said, don't, don't look for a loophole. Reject the loopholes. Notice the first thing he does. He said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he says, and he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And you know what the lawyer, I call him Mr. Rogers, by, by the way, that's my nickname for the lawyer, Mr. Rogers. If you're Italian, you just nickname everybody, right? You got little PD and big PD and medium PD and everything. And so you just nickname people, right? So this guy's name is Mr. Rogers. And Mr. Rogers, you know, he's like, well, of course he got mugged. How stupid could the guy be? I mean, what did he expect would happen if he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho? In Bible times, this was a famous road. This is a road that was really steep. It had, it had lots of curves in it. It had lots of, you know, rocks where you could hide behind it. And oftentimes, many times, thieves would hide out in those bends and behind those rocks. And if you went down that road by yourself, you would be beat up, mugged, sometimes killed. All your stuff would be taken from you. It, is, it still happens. And by the way, they call that the way of blood. That was the name of the road, the way of blood in Bible times. And so the, the lawyer is listening to this going, and the guy walked down that road road by himself how stupid could that be of course that happened to him and here's the guy's thinking because his consequences were the result of his own choice i don't have to be a good neighbor to him have you ever got around people like that well they got what they had coming to them well, we try to tell them, and they just did it anyway. You know, how many's ever done something after somebody tried to tell you not to do it? Can I see your hand if you're in the club? We all have. But somehow we think that if somebody has brought whatever has happened upon themselves, that that excludes us from including them in our neighborhood. And Jesus is saying, reject that loophole. There is no loophole for that. It doesn't matter whether they caused it or someone else caused it. It doesn't matter whether it was their fault or someone else's fault. Nobody is excluded from the love that we are commanded to show other people. And then Jesus presses the issue a little bit more. Because, notice what he says, a priest happened to go down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now the Levite and the priest had reasons for not stopping. They were not good reasons, but they were reasons anyway. In Bible times, there were so many Levites and priests that they had to rotate their service time in the temple. And serving in the temple was like a big deal. It was like, if you got to serve in the temple, it was like a badge of honor. It was like, I get to serve in the temple. The Levite and the priest, there were so many of them, they would give them one week out of the whole year that they could serve. And then they would rotate because they had such a desire to serve in God's house. They were like, today's my day for parking lot ministry. I can't wait to get there two hours early so that I can wave and smile at everybody. I cannot wait to clean poopy diapers today. It is my day. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait to lead those kids in worship. I can't wait to smile at the doors. I can't wait to be an usher. I can't wait to serve in sunbucks. I can't wait for them. I'm like, God, give us some Levites and some priests. And so 
they, they wanted to do this so bad. And uh, it was their week. Their whole life revolved around this week. They would take off work, and, and, and I mean, they put it on their calendar. They made sure that they were going to be in church that weekend, even if it was nice out. They didn't care about, you know, missing a nice day. They wanted to be in God's house, and, you know, they didn't really care about going and enjoying the weather. They wanted to be in God's house, and they didn't care about getting stuff done around the house. They wanted to be in God's house. I know who I'm preaching to right now, but... But there were certain things that would disqualify them for serving. You had to be clean, ceremonially clean, to serve in God's house. They had rules for serving in God's house. So if you were like dirty in some way, you couldn't serve in God's house. Listen to what I'm saying carefully, because I just said something that should have registered. Some churches exclude people from using their gifts and using their talents because they're not quite perfected yet. Can I tell you what that is? It's the law. Now, are there qualifications? Yes. But do you know where most of the qualifications are placed? It's placed on the higher up you go in leadership. It says don't put a mic in front of, in front of your mouth. Don't be a preacher. Don't be a pastor unless you have certain criteria, right? But there are certain things that anybody can do in God's house. And here's what I've learned as a pastor. I've learned that if we let people who are, quote, not clean begin to serve around God's house, here's what I found out. I found out that the Holy Spirit begins to deal with their heart, and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit does what he does best, and he begins to challenge them and mature them and grow them because they've experienced being a part of God's house. Pastor, you're going to let them serve? Really, Pastor? Yes, I am. Why? Jesus hung around people like that. And I want people like that in our church. And so there were certain things that would make you ceremonial and clean. One of them was if you touched a dead body. So here are these, these Levites and these priests. Their whole life is revolving around their one week in the temple. And if they go over and they touch a dead body, this man lying on the ground, it comes at great personal price. It would make them unclean. They'd have to go out in order to get clean and buy a red heifer cow. They'd have to reduce it to ashes. They'd have to stand outside the gate in the temple and with all of the sinners and they would be humiliated. And then if the person happens to be somebody who wasn't dead and needed help, they'd have to stop what they're doing. They'd have to invest their own money in trying to help the person. And the sacrifice was too great. And so they walked on by the other side. In other words, they found a loophole. Have you found a loophole in excluding people from your hood? Have you found some type of reason that you've justified in your heart and you justified in your mind why somebody doesn't deserve to be treated a certain kind of way? Doesn't deserve your kindness, doesn't deserve your care, doesn't deserve your brotherly love. Jesus is saying, there is no such loophole. Jesus is saying to us that every single person deserves to be treated with the love of God by us who are Christians. He says, the Levite and the priest, they walked on by. But watch this verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. When he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave it to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you have. The Samaritan was willing to sacrifice his safety, his time, his reputation, and his money because he wasn't looking for a loophole in love. He was looking for an opportunity to love. Wouldn't it be great if in our society 
we started looking for opportunities to show the love of God to people. We're on the lookout to love somebody today. You know, instead of the lookout to point out a fault or look out to blame somebody or criticize somebody, we've got to change our perspective. Jesus was on the lookout for people to love. So should we. And so number three, Jesus says this. If we are going to be good neighbors, we need to respond like it's us. Respond like it's you. To understand this, we've got to find out where Jesus puts Mr. Rogers in the story. Mr. Rogers sees the guy as a faceless man on one level, but on another level, the guy is a Jewish guy because he was on the way from Jerusalem to Jericho. And so what Jesus is basically saying to Mr. Rogers here is he's saying, I need you to see that as you laying in the middle of the road, that you stripped, that you hurt, that you left for dead, that you making poor decisions and dealing with the ramifications that were bigger than you thought that they, they would be, that you needed assistance for whatever reason, whether it was your fault or not your fault. And this is the genius of Jesus. He puts the man who was looking for a loophole in the law And looking to exclude whoever he can from being his neighbor, right smack in the middle of the story as the one who needs a neighbor, and the one who was neighbor to him was a Samaritan, somebody he hated. Remember, we talked about it last week. Jews and Samaritans hated one another. They came from the same place, but they hated each other because of their race. The Jewish people thought that they were half-breeds. They wouldn't even walk on their land. They hated Samaritans. And Jesus is saying this, but it was the Samaritan that helped you. For our context, see the Samaritan as the race you've excluded from your hood. The Trump or Hillary supporter you excluded from your hood. The CNN or Fox watcher you excluded from your hood. The pro-lifer or the pro-choicer you excluded from your hood. The gay or straight person you excluded from your hood. The Republican or Democrat you excluded from your hood. The whoever and whatever you have written off as a neighbor and therefore don't have to treat with loving kindness. That is the Samaritan in the story. What is Jesus saying? Respond like it's you. Listen, when I'm sick or hurting, I don't care where help comes from. I don't interview my doctor before I allow him to treat me. I don't go to the doctor and go, okay, she's, the nurse comes in and says, okay, the doctor will be in in a minute, you know, remove your shirt. I'm like, now, wait a second. Hold on here. Before I remove my shirt and allow the doctor to examine me, I have a question here for the doctor. Doc, I need to know before you treat me, who would you vote for in the last election? <laughs> Doc, I need to know before you treat me. Uh, are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? I need to know before you treat me, do you watch CNN or do you watch Fox News? I need to know before you treat me, are you a Christian, Doc? And by the way, what kind of Christian are you? Are you Baptist? Are you Pentecostal? Are you Lutheran? Are you, are you Catholic? I need to know, Doc, and I need to know, do you believe the Bible is the inspired word of Almighty God? Because if you don't believe the Bible is the inspired word of Almighty God, I'm not so sure that I can allow you to put your grimy, grubby hands on me. When, you, when you're hurting, you don't, you, don't, you don't pre-qualify people to help you. You just, you just respond. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, respond like it's you. Like your plight is their plight. Like your fight is their fight. Like your hurt is their hurt. Like your mistake is their mistake. Respond like it's you. Four things Jesus says here. If you're going to be a good neighbor. Excuse me. We need to rethink church. Rethink church. Now, I put this point in here because you never hear anybody when they talk about the Good Samaritan talk about the inn. 
Where did the good Samaritan drop the guy off? He dropped him off to heal at the inn. Do you know what the inn is? The inn is the church. The inn is the church. Jesus says, not the healthy that needs a physician. It's the sick. Here's what he's saying. He's saying that, that we ought to be a place where anybody can come to. Doesn't matter what their issue is. Doesn't matter what they come in here believing. Doesn't matter if they're on the right side of morality or the wrong side of morality. We need to be a place where people can come and people get dropped off on and people get cared for and people get brought back to health. That's what Jesus is saying. And notice what he does. Gives us a little insight into the conversation between the good Samaritan and the innkeeper. Not the whole conversation, but a little bit of the conversation. Here's how the conversation goes. Good Samaritan goes there, says to the innkeeper, he said, here's two denarii. Take care of him. When I come back, if he's cost you anything more, I'll pay for that too. That's all we know about the conversation. I'm like, I want to know what the innkeeper said. If the innkeeper was a modern-day Christian, you know what the innkeeper would do? he said, say, well, wait a second. Can you tell me a little bit about this guy? Just take care of him. Can you, can you tell me how this happened? Just take care of him. Can you tell me if I need to be careful about this guy? Just take care of them. Can you tell me if they're on drugs? Just take care of them. Can you tell me if they're pro-life? Just take care of them. Can you tell me if they're gay or straight? Just take care of them. Can you tell me what their nationality is? Just take care of them. Can you tell me what their race is? Just take care of them. Can you tell me who they voted for? Just take care of them. Can you tell me if they attended the latest protest? Just take care of them. Do they believe the Bible is the inspired word of God? Just take care of them. Evolution or creation? Just take care of them. Arminian or Calvinist? Just take care of them. Urban or suburban? Just take care of them. Just take care of them. Just take care of them. What's Jesus doing? Jesus is saying, rethink church. He's saying here, this doesn't mean we don't teach what's right morality and wrong morality. That's the place for it. The church is the place for it. That doesn't mean we don't teach people right standards and wrong standards. But let me tell you what church is not. Church is not an angry preacher banging on a pulpit condemning sinners. That's not church. Church is a called preacher professing the good news of Jesus Christ and discipling people who are both close to God and far from God. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, before you tell everybody how much you know, make sure you show them how much you care. Because if you don't show them how much you care, they'll never listen to how much you know. I'm going to just flesh this out just a little bit. Remember the Apostle Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians? By the way, if you don't know, we're a Pentecostal church. We have a celebration of, of, of that every month, what we call outpouring. It's a time for all of the gifts of the Holy Spirit to, to manifest themselves. We believe in the gifts of healing and the workings of miracles and speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues, words of prophecy and words of wisdom and words of knowledge. And we believe in all that because the Bible teaches that. We're not, we're not a partial gospel church. We're a full gospel church. So we believe in all that. But you know what the Apostle Paul says this? He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a clanging symbol. In other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying, if you have all your theology in order, 
but yet you don't love people, you have no effect on people's lives. You have to show people in order to be able to disciple people. And by the way, everybody in here, if you've never gone through discipleship, you ought to get in discipleship. That's one of the reasons for small groups. We want to teach you what the Bible says about how to live a healthy, successful, prosperous life where you can fulfill the plan and the mission that God has for you. Get in discipleship. But here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying you don't win the opportunity to disciple people first unless you show them how much you love Jesus has a woman thrown at his feet, caught in adultery. The religious people say, the law says we ought to stone her to death. What do you say, Jesus? What did Jesus do without breaking it down? He first loved her, protected her. Protected her against what the law says. Listen to me. The letter of the law kills. Never expect to hold anybody to the letter of the law because we cannot hold ourselves to the letter of the law. It kills, but the Spirit gives life. There's, there's a reason behind what God wants for our life. And so what does Jesus do? He protects her from the letter of the law. Everybody else leaves. He dusts her off. He gets her on her feet. He gives her a hug. He encourages her. He lets her know that there's still a plan for our life. He lets her know that her mistake was just a mistake, but God can turn the mistake into a miracle that her mess is not final he lets her know that there's hope he lets her know that there's grace and then after he lets us know all those things he showed her how much he's loved her he says go and sin no more now he's discipling her it's amazing how quick discipleship catches on when it's baked in love and so what is Jesus saying to us he's saying we need to rethink church and that brings me to my last point How do we become a good neighbor? We need to relaunch FaceTime. Relaunch FaceTime. Anybody have FaceTime on your phone? I love FaceTime. You Android users, you ain't got FaceTime. Ha, ha, ha. I love it because so much is communicated not just by what you say. So much is communicated by by the facial expressions and what you look like. So I love FaceTime because it helps you to communicate better with people. And as we look into this, we see the in is the church. The Good Samaritan, by the way, guess who that is? It's Jesus. And on the third layer, the last level, the man that was dropped off at the inn, the man that was beaten and left for dead, guess who that really is? It's you and I. That was you and I laying on the ground, stripped, beaten, and left for dead. That was you and I bleeding out and in need of someone to stop the hemorrhaging. That was you and I not being able to fix our sin problem all by ourselves. That was you and I who were destined to die if left without help. And while you and I were laying there, the Levite and the priest came by. The law came by and challenged us to fix ourselves by good morality. But we couldn't do it. We tried and it left us bleeding. It left us dying. That was you and I on the side of the road. But the one who came by and stopped and helped us and picked us up, that's Jesus. He's the good Samaritan. He's the one who came to our rescue. By virtue of our sin, we rejected him from our hood. He could have walked on by. He could have stayed in heaven. He could have ignored our plight. But instead, Jesus traded places with us. He got off of his horse. He put us on top. He took us to the end. He left heaven. He came to earth. He took our sin, gave us his righteousness. Jesus is that good Samaritan. He did it at his own expense. 
The good Samaritan took his own bandages. He took his own ointment. He took his own money to redeem that man. Jesus, the Bible says, not with the blood of silver and gold have we been redeemed, but by the precious blood of the lamb. It was his own blood, not somebody else's blood. His own expense that he saved our soul. He's the good Samaritan. Jesus not only dropped us off at the inn, not only did he do it at great expense, but he said, you know what? I'll be back. Here's what you need for now, but I'm coming back. And what did he do? He gave us the down payment of the Holy Spirit. He's the one to help us through life every single step of the way. And what I love about Jesus is he didn't just pay for what we did prior to giving our life to him. He paid for everything that we'll ever do. And so even after you and I keep on sinning, you know what Jesus keeps on doing? He keeps on forgiving. After you and I keep on blowing it, Jesus keeps on rescuing us. When life happens, he's there. When it's our fault, he's there. When we sin after we're saved, he's there. When we're sick, he heals. When we're broke, he provides. When we're depressed, he delivers. When we're broken, he repairs. When we're brown bound, he sets us free. When we're addicted, he gives us another chance. When we're confused, he guides. When we're worried, he gives peace. When we're anxious, he gives rest. When we're full of doubt, he gives hope. Jesus is that good. Samaritan. We're the ones lying on the road. And you know what this part of the story is for? It's for the penny to drop. America. It's for the penny to drop, church. You're not better than anybody. We're not better than anybody. Even if we're right about something, we're not better than anybody. Everybody serves, be treated with love, kindness, and respect. And when you treat people like that, you know what happens? You bring out the best in people. Well, they don't deserve it. Stop looking for a loophole. Well, the scripture says, stop looking for a loophole. Well, they said, stop looking for a loophole. This is the part we're supposed to realize that Jesus didn't have to love us. He had every right to hate us. He created us. We went our own way. Our sin put him on the cross. Our sin caused that crown thorn to be put on his head. Our sin caused him to be whipped and beaten across his back. Our sin sentenced him to be separated from the Father for the first time in his existence. That was our sin. He had every right to hate us. He saved us, and he asked us to follow the way, but yet we go the way of the world instead of the way of God so often. He has every right to hate us, but he loves us just the same. He asked us to love other people the same way. But why don't we? What's our problem? Why don't we love like Jesus loved? Well, here's what I believe. I believe it's because we stopped using our FaceTime app. We stopped FaceTiming with Jesus. That's where the story of Mary and Martha come in, and it's not going to take me but two minutes to to close this up. See, in the story of Mary and Martha, Mary is, is, is distracted by life. Martha is distracted by life. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Let me make that plain for you. Martha is focused on politics. Mary is focused on prayer. 
Martha is focused on correcting others. Mary is learning how to care for others. Martha is focused on the problem. Mary is focused on the answer. Martha is listening to the lies in our head. Mary is listening to the words of eternal life. Martha is feeding her soul with the poison of hate. Mary is fueling hers with the principles of healing. Martha is spending time letting the culture affect her relationship with Christ. Mary is spending time with Christ so she can affect her culture. Martha is reflecting on what Mary is not doing for her. Mary is reflecting on what Christ would have her do for others. Martha is distracted by the mayhem and Mary is being discipled by the Messiah. Martha is focused on the news cycle and Mary is FaceTiming with Jesus. Are you FaceTiming with Jesus? Are you, are you spending time with him on a regular basis? How could you look into the face of Jesus and then into the face of someone else and hate? How could you look into the face of Jesus and have him look back at you? The eyes that see my sin, that watch me rise again. I look into the face of Jesus and every time I do, I realize how undeserving I am. I realize what his grace has done for me. And I receive that. And that love envelops me. And then I can walk out, look into the face of someone else, somehow think that they don't deserve that. It's time for America to FaceTime with Jesus again. It's time for the church to spend more time in the book than watching the news. It's time for the church to say, what saith the Lord? Then what saith my party? It's time for the church to face time with Jesus. We've got to learn that we can't take our lead from the left or determine what's right, what's righteous from the right. We've got to look into the face of Jesus. That's how we learn how to be a good neighbor. Would you stand to your feet?